Well, good morning again. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith begins with this article, the very first article. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence manifest goodness, wisdom, and power of God so much that man is left without any excuse for his unbelief, they are not sufficient to provide that the knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary for salvation. In other words, the Bible is how we know God. It is how we know His Son, Jesus Christ. It tells us how people are saved. It tells us the nature of saving faith. And it tells us how we are to live if we are found in Christ, if we are indeed saved. It is sufficient We use that word, and what that means is that the Bible contains everything that we need to know. It deals with every possible issue. And therefore, God does not supplement His Word by inspiring any other means to know His will. He has given that in His Word. Now, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue there this morning. And in our passage, we're going to read the Apostle Paul's prayer and the content of his prayer, and he's going to pray for the knowledge of God's will in these young Christians in Colossae. We have to admit when we look at this that we live in an interesting time because knowledge and truth are not valued in our society, certainly not valued in a particular way. We promote falsehood, we endorse lifestyles of falsehood, nothing sort of broadcast that quite like the transgender movement. But we should be concerned about this. Revelation twenty two fourteen tells us that those who love falsehood and those who practice falsehood, those who live a life of falsehood, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so these are dire matters for us. But we must also remember that if you are in Christ, if you are a a believer, if you have repented, you have trusted in Him, if you're living in accordance with God's Word, that there's a warning for us as well. And that warning comes in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where it says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands, who thinks that he is righteous, that puts themselves above others, take heed lest you will fall. We must be very cautious. We must not develop an unearned sense of pride, for it is Christ who saved us, we didn't save Ourselves in 1 Peter 4.17 affirms that judgment will begin at the house of God. It will begin with us and whether we are faithful. And thus all of God's people must turn to God's word, seeking his will, repenting of our sins daily, and calling for God to grant repentance and faith to this nation that we live in because he warns in 1 Peter 2.8 that many stumble because they disobey the Word of God, as they were destined to do. Now, tomorrow, we know that we celebrate a holiday, right? It is a holiday that remembers the day that the 13 American colonies declared their independence from King George III and then launched into the creation of this republic of the United States that we live in. But we have fallen far from that day when this nation was established on biblical principles. This is not a shock to anybody. We live subject to a political and cultural movement that denies the supremacy of God and the authority of God and the authority of God's word and demands instead that we celebrate and we approve all types of rebellion and immorality, even murder. And many will deny when they do this that they can know God's will or question whether the truth, whether God's truth can even be known. But that was not always the case in America. And I want to read from you. You could pick any number of founders. And we do this almost every 4th of July weekend uh, is the illustration. But let me read to you from Dr. Benjamin Rush. Now, Dr. Benjamin Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was a ratifier of the United States Constitution. And he is known in history as both the father of American medicine and the father of public schools. So I want to read to you here. We have many in our congregation who work in the public school system, and I thank you for that. We need more Christian voices there. But I would say to you, as I read from Dr. Rush, think how happier you would be 
if Dr. Rush was still in charge of the school system. He writes this. This is a very lengthy quote. I had to cut it back, and it's too bad because it is amazing stuff. He writes, The gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Happy are the people who are enabled to obey them in all situations. My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of His Son upon the cross. Nothing but His blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. That would get him fired today. I think we can all agree. It would probably have him end up in the courts as well. But he goes on. He writes, The only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican form of government, remember he's not speaking political parties here, the United States is a republic, not a democracy. Uh, The only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican form of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. He is speaking of the schools that will be created. The great enemy of salvation of man, he writes, the devil himself never invented a more effective means of limiting Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read and teach the Bible at schools. It'd be great to be a public school teacher if Benjamin Rush was still in charge. What a change it would be, but how far we have fallen. The challenge for us, the challenge for the world is that we are unwise about what Scripture actually says. And the danger for the biblically unwise, the spiritually undiscerning, is that we become like those that are described in Ephesians 4.14, like children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, every teaching that sounds good to us, everything that makes us feel like it's right. We're carried away by that, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So how is this countered? Well, this is countered by sound doctrine, by the teaching of the Bible. It is countered by our devotion to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and His Word that He has spoken in truth in our Bibles. It is countered by setting apart the Lord's day and gathering with one another, letting iron sharpen iron, serving one another, and being served by one another in love. And it is countered, of course, by prayer. Intercessory prayer. Prayer on behalf of or for others. And Paul demonstrates this in our passage this morning in Colossians 1.9 where he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And may we be like that also. That should be our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word as always humbled, seeking truth, praying for the illumination that comes by your Spirit, we pray that the Spirit would open hearts this morning, that scales would fall off of eyes, that ears would hear. Lord, change our lives. We seek to be disciples of our Lord, according to his word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we do continue in Colossians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 9. This is a block of text, verses 9 through 14, but it's going to be a multi-part series, because here Paul provides the detail of his prayer, and you can break it into three parts, really. First is the request for knowledge, biblical knowledge, spiritual knowledge. The second part of this prayer is for the Christian conduct, how we live once we have this knowledge, uh, true knowledge of God and His Word. And finally, he then offers thanksgiving to God for his mighty work of redemption and deliverance and salvation of these Christians in Colossae. And so as we turn to our text this morning, we remember, as always, Paul is writing from Rome in a prison cell, held there because he has been out preaching salvation by grace through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone and for doing what every one of us is called to do, for going out and telling all who hear the gospel to turn to Jesus, repent from your sins, believe for forgiveness and eternal life. And so there he sits in prison. And he has never met the Christians in Colossae. He's never been to Colossae. But he knows that they are Christians, and they are young in their faith. They were converted by Epaphras, who now comes to Paul and tells him of their faith. So we pick this up in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is the content of Paul's prayer. But the first question we should ask ourselves is, why does he pray? Well, why does he pray in the first place? What causes this? There is a cause always to pray. We can pray because we're offering thanksgiving to God. We might pray out of devotion to Christ. We might pray out of reverence and awe, or to use biblical language, the fear of God. It can be an event. It often is an event, good or bad, that causes us to pray. There's many reasons why we might pray, but there is always a cause. It can be the result of a prayer request. And we probably don't send out enough of those, but it can be that. And that's not new. Sometimes I think we think that that's something we should shy away from, that's new in the modern church. It's not new. It's not a new phenomenon. Listen to one example. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul issues a prayer request on behalf of himself and his mission team. And he says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. That is a prayer request given via letter to the Thessalonians. We might pray for our own well-being, so that we can continue in our faithful service of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded always of that familiar story in 2 Corinthians. You can find it in chapter 12, 7 through 9, but this is where the Apostle Paul is afflicted by a thorn, a messenger from Satan, right? And he prays to Jesus Christ three times, he says, to relieve him of this terrible pain. And in God, in his infinite wisdom and perfect goodness, denies the request. Keep Paul humble in his ministry. We can pray for deliverance, right, from a bad situation. Many of us have offered these prayers. Paul did this with his imprisonment in Rome. He asked others to pray for him. He wrote to Philemon. And in Philemon, verse 22, he says, I'm hoping that through your prayers I may be graciously given to you. I may be set free from prison. Pray for me. We can pray for wisdom, for protection, which we often need in the spur of the moment as we seek to do God's will in our life. And you see this with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king when the Israelites were in exile. And in Nehemiah 2, verse 4, you see the king sees Nehemiah as sad, and Nehemiah wants to return to Judah. And so he begins the discussion, and the king asks him, what can I do for you? And then we read this, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, We can offer these prayers. Prayers don't have to be long. They don't have to be formal. They can be short. They can be informal. But they must be with the right heart. They must be in obedience to God according to his will. 1 John 5.14 tells us, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so we want to be walking in God's will. We want to be praying in accordance with God's will. And that brings up the question, how do we know God's will? Do we know God's will according to how we feel? Is that, should that be our guide? That is indeed what some would say. How do you feel? What emotions are drummed up in you? But nothing could be more wrong. That is actually the world's mantra for sort of a self-idolizing pagan religion, right? Follow your heart is what you see all the time. What does God say in Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, it goes on and says only God can understand it. Do not follow your heart. Don't follow your emotions, your feelings. They're temporary. They can be deceptive. Or our own sense of right and wrong. That's not as intuitive as you might think. We can feel very religious as we sin. And it happens all the time. We can simply sin and declare, God would want me to do this. He would want me to say this. He would want me to approve this. Even when he has spoken so clearly against it. I want you to think about King Solomon for a moment. His prayer for wisdom. Right? God, God comes to him. He can have anything, anything that he requests. 
Why does King Solomon ask for wisdom? Of all things. Well, he tells us why in 1 Kings 3.9. He prays to God, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, so to serve God's purpose. But why wisdom? That I may discern between good and evil. See, the human heart's deceptive. You need God's word and God's input to know what is good and evil. We're easily deceived. We can deceive ourselves. And we need that discernment that comes from God's word. Now, there's one big cause to pray that I left off the list. And we often leave this off the list because our prayers often focus on ourselves, our current situation, what we need in life, or maybe just our families. But we forget the power of prayer in furthering God's kingdom, in fulfilling his will that the gospel may be heard and believed around the world. But we sometimes forget that we pray because we're told to. Because we honor our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray. We pray out of obedience and love for him. And 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Our lives should constantly be seeking and revolve around communion with God. That's what we should seek. In 1 Timothy 2.1 we read, First of all then, I urge that supplications, big word, means requests, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, right, praying on behalf of others, and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is a command. I have to pause here just to thank uh, the 50-plus women who are engaged in our women's Bible study this summer. This is exactly what they're studying, how to pray in accordance with the Bible. The Bible's chock full of prayers, and how to pray for God's will, how to pray unselfishly, how to pray for others in accordance with the word. And the Apostle Paul models intercessory prayer for us consistently in all of his epistles. And in Colossians, the cause of his prayer is not familiarity with anyone in particular. He doesn't know these people. Never been there. But he is moved to intense, specific prayer for one reason. Verse 9 begins this way. And so from the day we heard, what is that pointing us to? It's pointing us back to verse 4. It was that he heard of their faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that they had for all Christians. That was all the motivation that he needed. These are fellow Christians, and therefore they have a need for growth and for sanctification and for teaching and sound doctrine that they might bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And that is a tremendous lesson for us. That Think about the mission of our church. Some of you are newer, so you don't maybe know the mission of this church. It is be disciples of Jesus Christ for a purpose, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And here we get a model in Paul of how we can be engaged in the spiritual growth of Christians who we can't even physically meet with. And you don't have to use Zoom or FaceTime. He, uh, there's no link that he sent them in the letter of Colossians, right? You can actually just pray for them. We have a much more powerful way than technology of securing the blessing and development of disciples in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means is given to us by God. It is commanded of God. And that means is prayer. We pray for our fellow Christians. Now, if you read all of the prayers of Paul, we don't have time to go look at them. We're just going to focus on this one. He is never shy about making definite specific requests on behalf of others. Sometimes I do hear from people, I don't want to presume upon God, so I just sort of throw out a generic prayer. Well, that is not modeled anywhere by the Apostle Paul. He's very specific. He makes specific requests that can be answered, yes or no. And we should do likewise in our prayers. In verse 9, we saw that what he prayed for. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The first thing I want you to note in that verse is that Paul is deeply invested in these brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who he cannot even see. He doesn't offer a one and done prayer. He doesn't briefly mention them. He doesn't sort of say, dear God, please remember the Christians in Colossae. They're having a hard time. And, and move on. Now we read actually here that he prayed continually. And we see that he prayed with focus. And this is reflected by Paul elsewhere. His love for God consistently manifests itself and shows up in a desire to be in communion with God in prayer. And his love for God's people 
Right? That second great command. The love for God's people, those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord, compel him to pray frequently, unceasingly, for and on their behalf. And he prayed specifically. He asked that you may be filled. By who? By yourself? No. This language here is what we call the divine passive. And it is very specific. You see this throughout the Bible. It is written clearly to imply that God is the one who is asked to act. He is asking that God fill them with the knowledge of his will. Because it is indeed the Holy Spirit who works in us. The Holy Spirit doesn't work without means. He works through the means of Scripture, the God-breathed truth for salvation and for all of life. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12-13, we're reminded, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He's praying for God to fill these Christians, but not just a little bit. He's not just saying, kind of like, put a few dollars of gas in the tank, or today it would be a whole bunch of dollars of gas in the tank, to get you to the next place, to get through this next struggle. Now, the word that Paul is using here, it means to be completed, to be filled up, to be made completely full, cup runneth over knowledge of God's will. And there's a reason for this. Because when we are full of God's truth, when it is bubbling out of us, it becomes the controlling factor in our lives. You cannot ignore it. It drives every thought. It drives how you speak. It drives your beliefs. It drives how you interact with your children, your spouse, your neighbors, your employers. It drives everything to be in accordance with God's will. No, we don't do it perfectly. But being full of his truth, it guides us. It's not a little knowledge either. Not just full of a superficial knowledge, a surface level knowledge. It is a deep and thorough knowledge of God and his revealed will that Paul is praying for. In Greek, the general term for knowledge is gnosis, which is where we get the heresy Gnosticism, which we talked about in 1 John, and actually we'll get here in Colossians 2. They're facing this as well. Gnosticism is that heretical belief system, which is actually prevalent today. It's a reliance on special knowledge, knowledge outside of Scripture, that you can know more, that you're smarter than what God has said, and there's something better and more spiritual that you can convey. That's Gnosticism. But here Paul doesn't doesn't use that term, that general knowledge, gnosis. He wants them to be filled with epigenosis, a deep knowledge, a thorough knowledge, a complete knowledge of God's will. And this is important. Now, it is true, it is true, and I want to be very clear here, that you can come to salvation by repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord with very little knowledge. You only need to know you're a sinner. You only need to know that the eternal Son of God came and lived perfectly in accordance with the law for you. That he went to the cross, he died, he bore your sins, he bore the wrath of God against your sins, and then he rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for his people, and he'll return again one day. You, you can know just that much. But then, for those who believe, that knowledge must grow. It must grow in our hearts. We must have a desire for it because we are called to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And that only comes with knowing him. Because it is from the full knowledge of God, we'll see this next week, that we're enabled to lead worthy lives, pleasing to the Lord. The writer of Hebrews writes this kind of dire statement that I fear that we often in our culture find ourselves in because we have such a lack of interest in the Bible. Barna does a, a survey of the Bible in the United States every year. And in 2022, it was not surprising. It had not changed. Even though among those who are Christians, it's something like 5% read their Bibles. It's very low. And so we can easily fall into this same language. Uh, the author writes in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You've been in church for 20, 30 years. You've been taught the truth. You've got a Bible. You should be reading. You should be teachers. But you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. A constant drive back to the knowledge of God. Now, why is a deep and thorough knowledge of God so vitally important? Well, here you need to remember what's the occasion that Paul is writing to these Christians in Colossae. Remember, they're faced with false teaching. False teachers that often arise from within the ranks. These are professing Christians, no doubt, who do the devil's work, always saying, did God actually say, right? Just like the serpent in Genesis 3. Who cast doubt on the sufficiency of God's word. Remember, we define that it is sufficient, meaning there's nothing else needed outside of it. Always suggesting that there's some better knowledge, some higher knowledge, some new and better interpretation. That's exactly the same today. This is why for, for any heresy, any sin, any sinful desire, you can go to YouTube and you can find a man or even a woman who claims to be a pastor and, and they'll tell you anything that you want to hear. You can justify every sin in the book with technology. But you can't justify it with God's word. And that is why it was so important to have the knowledge of God and still is. These Christians in Colossae, they are embedded in a very licentious culture, a culture that pursues the immoral passions of the flesh. They chase them down. They, the same stuff that's celebrated today, right? There's nothing new under the sun. This is a cosmopolitan city. It is the same as what we live in society today. And what Paul is saying is, if the poison is culture, if the poison is the unbelieving world around you and the false teaching, the enemies of God, as James 4.4 would say, if that poison, this false teaching is exposed to you, then a deep and thorough knowledge of God is the antidote to that poison. This is the only thing that will keep you faithful. But that poison is not always so easy to detect. We can always look at the big sins around us. But it's not always easy to detect. And we're so prone to deceiving ourselves, especially when we want something. Especially if we can say on the surface it seems to be ordained by God and then we reconstruct God's will. And then we go chasing it down. So let me give you a general rule. It always holds true. God's will, if you're seeking God's will, God's will for you is never ever going to be contrary to his revealed written word. God's will for you is never going to be contrary to what he writes in scripture. Make sure you understand that, right? Those, the, the same Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit that carried men along as they wrote down the Holy Scriptures, 2 Peter 1.21, the same Holy Spirit that breathed out the entirety of Scripture such that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. That same Holy Spirit, he is the same Holy Spirit who fills us with knowledge of God's will as we pray and as we study God's word. So I want to give you an example. I don't often tell stories, but I'm going to tell one because this kind of fits as a good example, I think. I got a call last Saturday afternoon, and it was from a dear brother, from a pastor in another state. And I had been talking to him, as a number of us had, and praying with him, as a number of us had, over the last few months, and he had been offered a tremendous opportunity a tremendous ministry opportunity. It is one that we all would have jumped at. It was a great opportunity. And he had been working hard now to prepare himself to take advantage of that opportunity. Every door seemed to be open. It seemed to be a blessing from God, right? And, and he, was, he wasn't really falling into this trap, but I'll just remind you, it sort of fit into that open door theology, which we've talked about before, right? That we'll look really hard to find the open door and then say, I can squeeze through the crack, the door is open, God wills it, right? And, and that's, that's sort of what happens. Now, he wasn't exactly doing that, but he had been diligently preparing himself, he was excited, and he hit a snag. Now, he knew the answer, but he hit a snag. And he called. And before I get to the subject, let me just tell you how important it is for you to surround yourselves with men and women that are devoted to God's word and who can pray with you and who can pray for you and who can give you sound advice and who can provide that check on your nature. Right? Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. 
you need solid, biblical Christians that can point you back to the text, who know God and can help you know God, who can pray for you and with you. And that's what he was doing, and we have that relationship, and to keep the story short, there's a problem. To take advantage of this tremendous opportunity for ministry, one small issue. He was bivocational. Couldn't get the time off work. Couldn't get the time off work. He would have to call in sick to work when he wasn't sick. That's all he would need to do. Just call in sick when you're not sick. And the wrestling match was on. This was a decidedly Christian opportunity, right? It's one that I would argue most of you would jump at. Every door seemed to be open but one, just this small one, just a small one. And every part of him wanted it, and they wanted it so that he could honor Christ, so that he could serve his church better. And this battle, subtle as it might seem, is between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 remind us, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what's he do? What is the answer to this? He can do the work of God in a big way, but tell a little lie. And I venture to guess I could go ask a whole bunch of people and they would not even categorize it as a lie because we justify everything. We have lost sight of the horror and the grievous nature of sin in flight of a holy God. And so any sin is okay that we can justify. This is a lie. So what does he do? What is God's will for him in this, nature, this, this, this place that he's in? That's, a, that's the question. And we came back to this same principle. God's will for you is never ever going to require any one of his children to violate his nature. His holiness, his commands, his honor, his glory, his truth in his word. It will never require you to do this. How did God reveal his will? Where can you go to find his will in this case? Well, Holy Scripture. Proverbs 12, says this, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Those who act faithfully are his delight. This is no small thing. You might need to suffer for him a bit. You might need to forego this opportunity because no amount of faithfulness can be justified by a lie, no matter how small. Psalm 5.6 says the Lord will destroy those who speak lies. Revelation 21.8 powerfully tells us that God, who is truth, hates lies and hates liars so much so that they will be cast into the lake of fire right alongside idolaters, the sexually immoral, and the unbelievers. Right? That's how grievous lying is. Now, he knew the answer to all of this. I, it's not like he called me so I could explain it. But you just need Christian brothers and sisters to walk this walk with you, who can come alongside you, who can give you the strength sometimes to do what is right, what is God's will. You have to be able to apply these things to real life. You can't come Sunday morning and listen and read the Bible and then put it away and put it on the shelf and think you could just go live without this knowledge. It must change what you do. This takes us to the end of verse 9. It's an application of the will of God. Right? You, you have to know how to translate his will that's revealed in Scripture into your everyday life, which you live, admittedly, in a very complex world that presents you with all kinds of different No? There we go. All right. We're back on to start from the beginning. Please open your Bibles to Colossians 1. <laughs> Colossians 1. All right. 
It does indeed bring us to the end of verse 9. Don't get too excited. That's when preachers say they're at the end, you got like two-thirds of the sermon left. So we're at the end of verse 9. This is an application, right? So, so what does Paul pray for these Christians? He prays that the Christians in Colossae will be filled with all knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Those are the two descriptors that he adds here. And spiritual wisdom and understanding, they apply to every area of life. This is not saying, you know, for when you're in church and doing spiritual things. No, that's not the qualifier he's giving. He's drawing a distinction, really, between the unbeliever and the believer. 1 Corinthians 2.14, for example, says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, right? Cannot accept his word because they are foolishness or folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Uh, You jump down to verse 16 there, and it tells us that believers are different because we have the mind of Christ. This this interesting statement. And it is true. It is true that Christ is in us by the indwelling of the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're still stuck with this. How do we uh, obtain knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Uh, Perhaps it's good to point out there is a difference between, they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, wisdom and understanding, but, but the reason both are listed here is wisdom is actually knowing what we should do, and wisdom is knowing who we should be in accordance with God's word. Understanding is then knowing how to take those, those imperatives and, and those truth statements and applying them to everyday life. Well, it's good to know that I, to use our example earlier, that I should not lie, but how do I apply that here? Everybody calls in sick, Right? Um, and so it's knowing how to apply that. And both of these things come from submitting ourselves to the diligent study of the Bible, which is the tool used by the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to, to bring us into conformity with the image of Christ over a lifetime. Now, there's always a great temptation for me to want to preach the whole Bible every time I hit a verse like this, but we don't have time. Because there's so many examples of God's will from Genesis to Revelation. So I'm just going to give you a couple. I just want to give you a couple. These are, these are some that tend to come up often. And it's good to see these. Because God's will is not hidden. He reveals his will for all of his children, those who are saved by their faith in Christ. And it's just contained all throughout Scripture. So here's the first one. You often hear this, this lie, it's either said overtly or it's just believed by people, that God just wants you to be happy. And if God just wants you to be happy, then he will overlook your sin. So you can say to that, that person, well, she has never been happier in her life, or he has never been happier in her life, despite the fact that they le- live in gross sin and about rebellion. I don't mean gross like disgusting. I mean big sin and rebellion. And we just say, that's okay, because they've never been happier, and they, they say they love a Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, but, but you know, a Jesus. And what does that represent to you? It's a lack of spiritual wisdom. You haven't gone to the scriptures to see what it is God says about these things. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3. And it says, for this is the will of God. So that it's not hidden. You can kind of figure out, well, what's the will of God? Well, this is the will of God, it says. Your sanctification. This is where I want to preach the whole Bible, right? So your sanctification, it means your progressive holiness, your conformity to the image of Christ, in conformity to his nature and his revealed will and his word. But it goes on there. It's actually pointing to one specific thing. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And lest you think that they didn't face the same temptations that we do today, they, they did. This is, this is humanity. The will of God, your sanctification, is that you abstain from sexual immoral, immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, I think about reading that out and I think, well, you're sitting in church here and it's easy, you nod your head, yeah, okay, of course, that's obvious. We know the Bible speaks against sexual immorality so many times. It's super obvious, but it's not. It doesn't seem to be obvious because actually what happens in real life is people read that and then default to culture. They default to emotion. Somebody's happy in their sin. They don't turn to the word of God. It's, it's not obvious. Now, it's easy, and the, the default is always to apply this to the LGBTQ, whatever the rest of the letters are, movement, because God has spoken so clearly there 
that you can just sort of pick it apart, and it's always in our face as rebellion, but that's not actually where I want you to go with this thought. Sexual immorality is also any heterosexual conduct between a man and a woman, outside the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. And you would be surprised how many times I've heard people say they could either live with somebody or engage in whatever sin they wanted, because everyone does it. And you find it in the church. It's okay. So what does that represent to you? It is a lack of wisdom, of spiritual wisdom. You have departed from the text of Scripture. You've departed from God's will, God's design of creation, God's picture of the family, God's intent that a man and a woman be united for life. And so you don't have that wisdom, and so you never can apply it. So you don't have the wisdom, you can't have understanding. Here's a second one. It's one that many also don't like today. God's will can involve you suffering for him. That runs counter to what anybody likes to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't even want to say that, right? But there are those of you sitting out here who suffer, either in relationships or with health issues. It may involve suffering. 1 Peter 4.9 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's really hard for us. It's really hard for us. It's easy to think we're right in step with God's will when things are going well. But when we suffer for it, what does he call us to do? He calls us to have faith in his goodness, in his sovereignty, to keep doing good. What does he mean by doing good? Keep following Christ. Keep loving your neighbor. Keep speaking the truth. Because God is in control. It's hard for us. Those are just two examples and we'll just move on or else I'll have to use a much bigger excuse than batteries to justify how long I go. You have to obtain. You've got to seek out the will of God. You have to do that by knowing his will, because it is to his will that we ultimately must submit ourselves. It is, in fact, God's will that Jesus Christ submitted himself, right? He is the eternal son of God in the flesh, and he knew the wrath that he would endure on behalf of all of those who would repent and believe in him and follow him for eternal life. And it was Jesus that modeled the reality that God's will is revealed in Scripture and nowhere else. Now, he is the God-man. He obviously has not the same mind in his humanity he did. But he exhibited time and time again that where do you go for God's will? You go to Scripture. For fun, we're not... I'm not going to give you the answer here. You can go through the Gospels and think of the number of times his teaching and his rebukes to people begin with, have you not heard? Have you not read? Is it not written? Right? Where is he turning people all the time? He never says to someone, oh, 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 did you not feel bad when you did that? No, that's not what he says. He says, have you not read? God says this. That is where you get God's will. But he gives one great demonstration that I just want to point you to. He gives a great demonstration that the will of God is contained in Scripture, even as it pertained to the person and work of Christ, the Savior, to come. And you see this as Jesus pointed his disciples to Isaiah 53 on the night of his arrest. In Luke 22:37, 37, he said to them, For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes, And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And when Jesus made that statement, they didn't have Bibles. They couldn't just go turn to them. But it should have caused them to stop in their tracks and say, wait a second, you're right. The will of God has been laid out for all eternity because it would be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who we are waiting to come save us that has to suffer. Isaiah 53.5, where Jesus was quoting from, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And verse 10 said, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It would be Christ who would suffer. And he would suffer in our place. And this was the will of God and it was foretold in Scripture 700 years before he was born of a virgin. 
And Jesus gives this instruction, saying, go back, because the will of God has been clear, and it has been laid out for you. And Jesus would submit to that will of his Father. He would kneel in the garden, and we read that he prayed earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground, Luke twenty two forty two. And we know the content of his prayer that he prayed three times. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We need to saturate ourselves in Scripture so that we can discern the will of God for our lives. So that we have the knowledge of it. So that we can apply it, whether it be in times of blessing or in suffering. We need to pray for one another that we don't succumb to one of two errors. Either the anti-intellectual movement that pervades in the church that tells people to ignore doctrine and ignore scripture and go the way you feel. Or the postmodernism that is around us all throughout culture that says you cannot know truth, so why look for it? The Bible warns of the danger of not having this knowledge. Proverbs 19.2 says a soul without knowledge is not good. Hosea 4.6, God says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you. It is a command. 1 Corinthians 14.20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. You need to turn to the word. And Ephesians 4.18 warns that those who reject Jesus Christ are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They do not know him. They do not know him by his word. And it is due to their hardness of heart. But why, you might ask, is the Christian church so quiet in the Western world today? We, we report tremendous numbers and then go silent. And you saw that even with the overturn of Roe versus Wade. The silence was deafening. So many simply do not have the knowledge of God or His will, and they don't want it. They don't have any desire to know it. In fact, it's easier to run from it, because it is in His Word that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. And we don't want that. We don't want to know what is sin. And He convicts the world concerning righteousness. And God forbid we know what is righteous, because if we know what is righteous, we know that we are not. And judgment. Because the ruler of the world will be judged, John 16, 8. God's will is no hidden secret. It is revealed in his word. So what do you do? How can you obtain the knowledge for which we pray, for which Paul prayed for these Colossian Christians? You have to want it to get it. John 7, 17, Jesus said, If anyone's will is to do God's will, it should be all of our wills. He will know whether the teaching is from God, whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Okay, how will you know? How will you know? Don't default to your own thoughts. Don't listen to the word of God read or preached and then just say, I don't like that, I like this other thing better. No, be a Berean, right? That's what we're called to do. The Bereans, the ones that Paul and his missionary team are talking to in Acts 17.11, says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Thessalonians had run them out. What did they do? They received the word with all eagerness. They attentively listened to the preaching of the apostles, but... Then they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That is how they grounded themselves. And what is the will of God? Hosea 6.3 encourages us, let us know. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. We can't just sit around and hope that by divine intervention, he'll fill our heads with knowledge. Let us press on to know the Lord. Turn to Christ. Believe in him. Avail yourself of his saving work. Lay your pride, lay your sin at the foot of the cross. Trust in his perfect life. Trust in his substitutionary death to save you. And then pray. Be in communion with God. Pray for others. Let them pray for you. And read. It's a tough one for us today, but you must read. We are a people of the book. Because that is how God works to fill us with knowledge of his will. The Holy Spirit within us. Let's close with this with another prayer. This is a prayer for you and for me. And it's in Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You see, you cannot divorce these two things. 
Why? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that indeed you would give us both the passion for your word as well as the knowledge of your truth. Father, we pray for wisdom and understanding. For it is easy in our culture to gain the wisdom and not apply it. To divorce it from life. To act as though we can keep the sovereign creator in your box and live like we're in control. Father, we pray for your guiding hand in all that we do. Lord, you pray that you you promise to send the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. We pray that he will do that work in our hearts this week. That we would see our blind spots, that we would be driven to repentance and faith in you. That we would turn to your word and not rely on our own human discernment, understanding, that we would not listen to lies, but always seek to test them against your truth. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word. You've given us your word in ways that we can understand it. You've given it to us in our language. We pray, Lord, for all those who live with only a portion of it, or maybe none of it in their language, and we pray for those missionaries on the field who actively are working to translate your wonderful truth into a language that they too can understand. But as those who are recipients of your truth, Lord, give us the ability, the desire, the will to seek after you and to do that through your holy word. Lord, keep us from error. Guard our hearts. Lord, bring people into our lives who are faithful, who can help us grow, who can challenge us just as we challenge them. And God, give us a great desire to pray for one another. Lord, let us be the light to the world. Let let them see our love for one another and that it is unique because it is a love driven by your holiness, your righteousness, and the sacrifice made for us by our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.